Tonight is April 30th. It's 2008. It's a Wednesday night. Our message this night is called Shelah. That's a Hebrew word that means to ask questions. And it implies that when you ask the questions, you get answers. Now, in modern Hebrew, it tends to refer more to questions that have to do with the Torah or questions that have to do with how you walk the Torah out, halakha. But in ancient Hebrew, it just simply had to do with questions. Now it's become a little more specialized term. You know that languages change through the centuries, huh? I never found out how true that was until I read an account of a man who introduced his kids to the Flintstones. Then during the theme song, the kids all began snickering, and he didn't know why. The theme song to the Flintstones sings, We'll all have a gay old time. And that means something dramatically different to kids in the 5th and 6th grade today than it did to kids in the 5th and 6th grade when the show was created. Languages change some. And when we see that this word has evolved, it's evolved and become more specialized, but you can still see in it the roots of something that's beautiful. When we begin hearing Judah's testimony or Steve's testimony, both of them have to do with simple acts of faith where God moved mightily. Isn't that encouraging? Let you know that he cares about your kids at school. He cares about your boss at work. He takes note of simple things, like somebody who's set in their heart to do the right thing no matter what the cost, or somebody who is set in their heart to make a special mark with anointing oil in the hopes that God will change someone. Well, the Bible's been this way for a long time, and Jews throughout history have been experiencing God. And if you have the idea that Israel was a dry, dead spiritual place prior to the time of Jesus, you couldn't be more wrong. Israel has always been vibrant with God, and one of the things that the generations were supposed to do was as they experience God, they're supposed to pass it on to the next generation. As I began thinking about my son and the testimony he gave before we started, I had a kind of a neat experience. I realized something. In Luke 2, starting in verse 41, it says, Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Why would Jesus' parents do that? Because they're Jews. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom, custom of the Jews. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. I started to not feel so bad about those mistakes that I make as a parent when I read this. There are a lot of things that I've messed up, but I haven't left any of the three of my children for an entire day believing them to be with me. And as special as they are, none of them were sired by God himself. So this made me feel a little bit better about my parenting skills. But then I began to dwell on this and realize Jews are very communal. And during the time of Jesus, an entire tribe from an area that was settled would caravan together for protection. And so you might have 50 cousins with you on a trip. You understand? So this is not such a strange thing, and it doesn't imply bad parenting skills. Verse 45. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. You might think it's a little audacious if you had a 
12-year-old sitting in the United States Congress asking the congressman questions. That could seem strange to a lot of people. And do you think that our congressman would take the time to listen and answer and talk with them? Only if a camera is present. They would think it was beneath them. But the Jewish method of learning has always had to do with this shiolah. It's always had to do with the idea that you would live your life in such a way that it would prompt others to want to ask you questions. And as they began to ask questions, you could hear in them understanding and yearning for more language, more, more revelation. So throughout the Jewish feast, and you're going to find out here in just a second, they ask questions and are encouraged to do so. A Seder has no less than four questions from the children in the house. They're prescribed that they're asked. Those of you that have had children know that they get to an age when they don't stop asking why. God put, them, put that in them. And there's a reason for this. In our educational system, for the most part, we practice rote memorization. We learn facts and we spit them back out. The Jewish educational system was based on something else. It was based on asking questions that showed that you comprehended something and wanted to go further. Does that make sense? Listen to this next line. Pick back up in 46. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. How can you be amazed at somebody's understanding apart from their answers? The questions that he asked showed he had a firm grasp of something. It's one thing to memorize that you eat unleavened bread during a Passover. That's one thing. And you could train a monkey to spit back out that fact. But to have a child of maybe five or six that says, Father, why unleavened? Is that because we're not supposed to have anything in our life that contaminates us? Or a question like that shows a deeper understanding. Something about the questions Jesus asked at 12 began to show them he had a profound understanding, and they listened to answers when they asked him questions as well. There was a meaningful dialogue going on between those who were learned and those who were not yet supposed to have obtained that knowledge. Turn with me then to Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. He says to teach them, impress them upon your children. One more scripture on that note, and then I want to tell you something about it. Turn a page or two. You'll be in Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen, or let them slip from your hearts as long as you live. What are they supposed to hang on to, in short? their experiences. And watch this. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Then he goes on to tell them some things they're supposed to remember. The idea is that as you mature, as you grow as a human being, 
you have been engaging with other human beings and with God in gaining valuable experience. That experience then is supposed to be passed on to the next generation. But the reason parents are given the job of teaching is because it's presumed that the parents have already had the job of learning and have done it well. Does that make sense? Well, the reason I go through all of that to tell you that is as we look at some of the situations that a parent in Old Testament Israel needed to learn so that he would be able to teach his children who asked, we find direct correlation between the parent, uh, Israelite in the Old Testament, and a Christian in the New Testament. See, because in the same way that a parent is presumed to have experienced life and been able then to teach a child, Christians are supposed to have experienced God interacted with him, gained experience through that, and when outsiders, people who have not yet had those experiences, people without them, ask us, we're supposed to be able to enlighten them and help them and cause them to grow and mature. So when we read about an Israelite parent teaching a child, there's a direct correlation to Christians and discipleship. Can you begin to see that connection? I'm not stretching too far. Pick up with me in Exodus 12 then. You ever take your kids to a park on a nice, pretty day because you want to teach them or do something nice with them? Ever go get them ice cream? A little bribery will get you everywhere. Let's see the kind of settings that God himself set up for the Israelites to teach their children. Exodus 12 is the story of an angel of death passing through Egypt. It's the story of an innocent lamb slaughtered on the behalf of the whole household, taking the blood from this lamb and painting the most public place of your house for all to see, painting the doorpost. How pleasant would that be, especially the first time you saw it? I mean, it's easy for us to think about this in glowing religious terms, but imagine that you're Natalie's age, and you hear that every firstborn male in the country that you live in is going to drop dead. Then you hear that the remedy for that is to take an innocent, pure, spotless lamb who you have to take into your house for four days and then cut its throat and use its blood to paint your doorpost. Do you think that could prompt a few questions from a kid? Exodus 12, look at the 24th verse. Obey these instructions as a fasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed and worshipped. I want you to begin to grasp the the gravity of that situation. This means that God himself put an entire nation, actually two nations, one within the other, under the threat of death, hanging over their head, and in a somewhat gruesome ceremony to the eyes of others, all for the purpose of getting a child to ask, what's the meaning? of all of this, and give the parent the opportunity to say, in the middle of a death-like situation, 
Our God provides salvation for us. See, when my son came to me, and I probably should have put the testimony on tape, but when he came to me and told me that somebody threw a football at his head on one day, it made me angry. Then when I found out the next day somebody slapped him in the face, it made me a little more angry. And then I realized this is exactly how God has arranged for us to teach our children. Because it's when Israel was in the midst of death that the children got to learn about God's method of life. And then as I began to contemplate a little deeper on the subject, I realized it's no different in Christianity. The bless me gospel is a lie and it is wrong. It's when the world, those who have not yet received this enlightenment we're talking about, sees you in the midst of a horrible situation and yet something's different, they begin or are prompted to ask you a question. Adam, what makes you different? When I burned myself with that welding torch, I cussed for two hours. I saw you do it the other day, and you just got a strange piece about you. Joy, what makes you different? We're all Buddhists here, and you used to be, and now you're not, and I've noticed you smile a lot more. What makes you different? See, these kind of questions are supposed to be prompted by the life that you live. God did this throughout Israel's history. turns me to the book of Joshua. It's only two direct times, though, that the phrase, when your children ask, appears in the Bible. It's interesting to note that both of them are under incredible duress. Incredible duress. Joshua 4. Let's just pick up in one. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan... The Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan from right right where the priests stood and carry them over to you and put them down in the places where you stay tonight. Hold your finger right there. What has happened is God has said, Israel, you will go into the promised land. I'm going to give it to you. So they said, Okay, Lord, we'll, we'll do that. On the other side of the Jordan stands a city called Jericho that the Bible says is tightly shut up and had high walls. Now, if God told you to cross a river and go take a city that truthfully was fortified in a way that you didn't look like you had the ability to take, how encouraged would you be when you got to the river at the time God said to cross it and it was swollen way over its bank and was at flood stage? Could that be discouraging to you? Do you think that maybe you could think, maybe God picked the wrong time of year to do this? We find out that when we're at the flood stage in life and our faith, our trust in Him rises to meet that obstacle, that our lives begin to prompt in others a question. What makes Lindy different? Why can she smile in those circumstances and everybody else can't help but cry? And that question becomes a powerful thing because it demonstrates a hunger. It demonstrates a desire to know something more than a memorized fact. It, it really indicates the desire for an experience they can see that you have had. See, it's wonderful that parents know more than children. I was sitting at a table with my sister the other day and I said, do you realize everybody at the other end of the table thinks we're morons? Everybody at the other end of the table was under 15 or 15 or under. She goes, 
Yeah, it's funny. Collectively, their IQ is not as high as one of ours, but they're sure they're smarter. And that's true. That's an advantage as a parent. But I can tell you, even if it weren't true, if you had an exceptionally bright child, what makes you different is the experience you've already had with your God, that you've already had with other human beings, and it shapes you. So what makes you different as a Christian from the guy in the world who is maybe intellectually superior to you? Maybe he's just a little brighter than you. He still has not experienced what you have, not been in the flood stage of the Jordan and carried home a trophy. See, what we need to begin to do is be willing to embrace the opportunities that look overwhelming so that others will go, how was that done? They begin to question Now, you would never question something that you see just as a natural occurrence, would you? Because it's natural. That's why we call it natural. It's only these supernatural things that cause you to really scratch your head and go, how did that happen? So what kind of lives do you think we're called to lead? Let's pick back up in four. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over there before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, What do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. God wanted a giant altar with a plaster inscription on it on the other side of the Jordan from the middle of the Jordan. And who did he say would ask? The kids. And when the kids saw it and said, Mom, Dad, which presumes that Mom and Dad have more experience than the kids, why? Why are these here? you would have an opportunity to explain to your children because the Lord our God calls us to do impossible things. And yet with Him, all things are possible. And this rock, it came right out of the middle of one of those situations and it's the proof. He did it in my generation, son, and He'll do it in yours. And this was a powerful method of learning. They encouraged it so much that the Jews say there's only four kinds of sons that you can have at a Seder. Seder's their Passover. And based on the questions that the children ask you, you're determining whether they're wise or foolish or reprobate. Yeah, it's amazing. One of them that doesn't even know the right question to ask is considered too stupid to understand God because he doesn't even know that he doesn't know. (laughs) Something when that's a kid, but what happens when that's a 50-year-old adult? How about that? Guys, our lives are about gaining not so much knowledge, that's important, but experiences with God that we can stand on, that make us confident in situations others grow weak, so that they'll look at you and say, David, how did you do that? I don't understand. If that weren't true, then why does 1 Peter tell us what it tells us? Let's go there. How many of you have thought of evangelism is a verbally active thing. That's the only way I've ever seen it presented. I've only ever seen evangelism done this way. I bump into Daniel at Food Town. And I said, Daniel, do you know that you're a sinner? 
No, I don't know that I'm a sinner. Have you ever hated someone? Well, yeah, I hate you, in fact. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ said that hate was equivalent to murder. You've broken one of God's laws. You're guilty of breaking them all. The wages of sin is death, and you're going to hell, Daniel. Do you want a way out of hell? Sounds like a sales pitch, doesn't it? Yeah. So Daniel says, well, sure, I'd like not to burn. So we say, hey, look, close your eyes. Shut up. Repeat after me. Right? No, no understanding. No questions. I watched this done with a good friend in a restaurant. Young man walks up to a table. He's serving food. Guy grabs him by the arm and says, do you know Jesus? He said, I'm Methodist. He said, the method didn't save you, boy. Come here. I'm going to pray for you. The kid let him pray for him because he had no idea what was going on. Then he was proclaimed a Christian and sent on his way. That is a very Western style of everything. No demonstration of understanding, no real question, no real concern. Just label them and send them. What we're supposed to be about is creating interest in people. Maybe that's why the Bible calls us the salt of the earth. That was the most vivid spice able to be used in an illustration at that time. People go, wow, that tastes good. What's in it? Oh, Christ is in that. That's the idea. So when we read this verse, it ought not strike you as surprising. 1 Peter 3, starting in 8. Finally, all of you. How many people does all of you leave out? (laughs) Yeah, finally, all of you. Just be glad that I cut to the place where he said, finally. What if we read everything that came before that? He thought I was long-winded. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Before we move on, how natural is it to refuse to repay an insult with an insult? How natural is that? Not very natural. How natural is it when somebody is ugly to you to be compassionate to them? That's not very natural, is it? In the natural state of the earth, as we look out right now, is what you see a great deal of sympathy and harmony? I mean, are those the words that you would characterize the creation with? So he must be then exhorting these people to live in a way that is beyond purely natural, something that we would call supernatural. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil. It's strange, but that's a supernatural deed. You know why? Your natural state speaks evil all of the time. And his lips from deceitful speech. You ever met somebody said, I don't lie? They just did. I promise you. I watched that show, Moment of Truth or whatever it was. Very, very sad. I, he said, but Eric, you're a pastor. Surely you'd do good on there. I'd do great on there as long as they're only talking about me. But do you really believe that you can't ask me a question about somebody that I love that I wouldn't want to answer because it would hurt their feelings? Yeah, it's a supernatural thing to be able in any and every situation to speak the truth, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, you had not thought that through very far if you don't understand what I'm telling you. You ever have somebody say, do I look fat in these jeans? (laughs) 
My wife assures me I look just fine in my jeans. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. How could you be blessed in suffering for doing what is right? In fact, you see that the apostles leave a thorough beating at the Sanhedrin and then rejoice for being able to suffer for the name. How does that happen? They had an experience with God that sustained them during a difficult time. That's an experience that could never be taken from them. It's not head knowledge. It's not something they intellectually ascended to or were thought or taught in a theology class. They had an experience with God that could never be taken away from them. That's how a beating could be a good thing. When I read Fox's Book of Martyrs for the first time, one of the things that I could not get over is people's flesh was falling off their bones in the fire and they had smiles on their faces and were singing hymns. You want to back up a few lines and say they were in where? What was going on? Because everything except the description of the fire or the jail or the drawn and quartering or whatever it was, everything except that sounded peaceful and joyful, almost sublime. So how is that possible? Well, apparently we serve a God that can sustain you in the middle of a famine. Apparently we serve a God that can put you in a situation where death is all around you and yet show you life. See, they walk away from this with an experience that can't be taken from them. And when other people say, how is it that you suffered in that situation, you didn't do anything wrong, and you're still not bitter or angry about it? Oh, because my God sustained me, and He'll sustain you in the situations you face if you trust Him. You see how the questions and answers work? We're supposed to learn by being around each other, by being able to ask each other questions sincere questions, and then see examples lived out. But what we would rather do is take multiple choice tests and just be declared right. The Jewish way of learning is really powerful. Watch, watch what he goes on to say. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear, and do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for all this hope that you have. See, when we're in situations, whether we suffer or not, whether we have to go in the fire to be delivered from it or only stand at a distance and watch God quench it, what we gain from these things is an experience that can never be taken away from us. Some of you that are in here, did you ever have a year in your life where you had almost nothing? Yes. Yeah. It's a funny thing that you hear, though. You sit around and talk with married couples, been married 50 years maybe. And when they reminisce, they reminisce about the first few years of marriage when they had nothing. Isn't that amazing? When you hear people reminisce about their childhood, they talk about the fact that they had very little and yet were happy. How is that? It's the same way in the kingdom. The times that we treasure as years go by are the ones that were difficult, but God sustained you. 
I'll tell you the truth, there are some years I can't even remember because they were full of blessings. But I remember every year that was very difficult, and yet I'm still here. I want to live a life that prompts a question. It says, how does he do that? Not how talented is he. Certainly not how good-looking is he. Not anything about the man, but what sustains him in those scenarios. And when we live a life that prompts those kind of questions, you don't have to trap somebody in an elevator or at food town or cram a Roman road of salvation down their throat. You know what happens? They see something that they admire and something that looks like it might help them. I went to the prison last night with two of the young men in our church. And one of the things that I was proudest of is in a a relatively short period of time, it was absolutely clear that men who were older than our young men from our church, men that had experienced things that these young men have not experienced, greatly admired them because of what they have already experienced, and that's God. I asked one of these gentlemen that they call Big Joe, Big Joe, what you reading? He looked right at one of our young men and said, whatever he tells me to read because he admired him and he wanted to follow his lead. We're supposed to live lives that prompt a question. Why are you the way you are? How does that work for you? It doesn't work that way in my life. I need your help. Would you show me? And it doesn't make you smarter or better or anything else except that you had an experience, one that God gave you. Turn with me to Psalm 91. We'll close with this. Don't y'all get used to these 30-minute sermons. That's a Wednesday night thing. I was editing sermons today. I edited seven sermons today. And I noticed something. Sundays are an hour and 18 minutes, and Wednesdays are 45 minutes. There's only one solution to that. We're going to have to start meeting at 5 o'clock on Wednesdays. Actually, it's good for me. pastor told me one time, if I couldn't say it in an hour, it didn't need to be said. To which I responded, please leave my church. <laughs> I actually had somebody tell me in high school, you should come to our church. He was my wrestling coach. He was in a unique position to strong arm me, literally, into going to his church. He said, our pastor never preaches over 23 minutes. We are the first ones at Piccadilly. <laughs> Their worship service, the entire thing, was under an hour. And the preaching part was guaranteed to be 23 minutes. I will make you no such promises here. But I do want you to understand something. Even as a lost young man, the first thing that that told me, as a completely lost young man, is they were not very serious about God. But doesn't it all mean that a four-hour service makes you more serious? But it could mean that. What I took away from that statement as a young man being tied in pretzel-like knots by my coach was that they were not at all serious about God. They just wanted some bodies there. I refused to go down that road. Are you all in Psalm 91? He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. (laughs) You know, when you are not shaken by a storm, when you know who is in your boat, When you're not crushed because of the report of bad news, it's because you know who stands with you. See, we sing the songs, pressed but not crushed, persecuted but not abandoned. They're so easy to sing about. You forget they were about men's lives.
They are in the future about men's lives, and it is your life now. That's why the Bible says don't think it's strange when trials of all kinds come upon you. Your brothers around the world are enduring such things. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's strip away some of the theology for a moment. How do you learn to trust anybody? You got to be put in situations with them where you would have the opportunity to see how they act. Some people will earn your trust. Some will show you they are clearly not worthy of it. Being put in situations where it looks as if God might fail you or you might fail God or however you think about it and seeing God come through increases your trust. And yet we do everything in our power to squirm out of positions where we're put in that test, don't we? I certainly do. I never wake up in the morning and think, please, Lord, put me in a humbling, humiliating situation today. (laughs) And yet it's in those very situations that I have survived and stood here to this day that I wouldn't trade for anything. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. How could you possibly know that? You either had to experience it yourself or know someone who did. See, when we share what God's done for us, trust in Him grows. His movement on the earth increases. And in every way, God is glorified. He will cover you with His feathers. (laughs) And under His wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. I won't teach on it tonight, but feathers is a Jewish way of saying he will cover you with his prayer shawl. Prayer shawl was a symbol of a man's authority. This is just like being in the shelter of the Most High. You're under the authority of the Most High, his prayer shawl. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Wouldn't it just be better? Wouldn't it be more agreeable to our American sensibilities if he had simply said, There will not be a terror at night, and there will not be arrows in the day. He didn't say that. No such promises ever made in the Scripture. In fact, observers of the Christian movement over the last couple thousand years have said things like, the church of the living God is an anvil that wears out hammers because we are among the most attacked group of people on the planet. God Himself, in His says, Anyone who wants to live a righteous life will be persecuted. God Himself said that, and He can't lie. So if you want to live a righteous life, you will absolutely face persecution. But you know what will be different? You will not fear it. In fact, you can rejoice in it because it's one more experience where your God comes through for you. One more experience that you can look at somebody else and say, (laughs) somebody else might have crumbled in that situation, but they don't have God and I do. I can't be crumbled because He's in me. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you does not at all to me sound like you'll simply be sucked away because God won't be this bride. does not at all to me sound like 
any sort of escapist theology, whether it's at the end of days or today. God will apparently allow trouble to be all around you, but you'll be different in the midst of it. Just like Israel in the midst of Egypt, Israel in the midst of the Jordan River at flood stage, and what you carry out of that is a testimony that makes people go, wow, something is different about you. And you say, yeah, it's me. Not at all. That'd make you an antichrist. You say, it's the God whom I serve. I belong to Him, and He cares for me. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. So no Christians ever died, right? Nobody's ever been martyred or butchered. Of course they have. But not one moment before God has said, this is the death you'll glorify Him by. Not one moment. They dropped John in boiling oil. But it didn't hurt him. You know why? Because the God of the universe did not give permission for it to hurt him. But, they crucified Peter upside down. He died. His wife died. They died on the same day encouraging each other on the cross. Why would God allow that to happen? Because it was a death by which they glorified God. And it's still being told about to this day. And you look at it and go, Something had to be different about them. They didn't beg or squirm for their lives. They encouraged each other and asked to be crucified in a different way because they weren't worthy to die the same way their Lord did. And the story's still being told today. See, when we're in the midst of difficult, horrible situations, whether the lion's mouth closed or not, what's different about us is that our God is with us. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Then they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. Have you ever been rescued when you weren't in trouble? It wouldn't be a rescue, would it? You cannot be rescued if you are not in trouble. So what is the position of the person speaking this entire psalm about God's love and protection and faithfulness? He's in the position of needing to be rescued. Who gets the glory when somebody's rescued? The poor sap hanging out on the roof or the dude hanging from the security wire off of a helicopter who, who picks him up in his arms? Who gets the glory? Isn't it the rescuer? Every time you're in a position where God has to rescue you, it brings Him glory because others see that it can be done. It's an experience that we carry out of the Jordan, out of the death throes of Egypt. I will protect Him, for He acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer Him. I will be with Him. What's that next word say? In trouble. I will be with Him in trouble. Jesus is the kind of Savior that is sitting with you in the principal's office, whether guilty or not. Better never be in the principal's office, Cody, Judah. He will be with us in trouble. And why? I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. 
We're going to close with this idea, but I want you to understand this. It's when you're in difficult situations and others go, how does he do that? That they get a chance to see God's salvation at work. Strip from your mind the idea of salvation is what happened to you when you were 9 or 30 or 50 or whatever it was. Strip from your mind that. Salvation is an ongoing process, and people see it at work when you are continually rescued by God. But that doesn't happen if we don't get in perilous situations. So, well, what do you mean perilous, Eric? Well, God will define it for you, I promise. I'm not suggesting that you look for trouble. I'm suggesting that you don't think it's strange when you find yourself in it as a Christian and that you be able to smile and go, wow, this is an opportunity for God to overcome and I'll carry that experience with me all the days of my life and others will ask and when I'm old and gray, I'll still be able to tell about what God did for me at that time. This is an awesome thing, saints. I encourage you to look for it, to embrace it, to recognize the moment and live in it where God is rescuing you. You know what's sad? It's when God does a great thing and we whine and moan and grumble the entire time and only realize years later that He was at work in it the whole time. How much better would it be to be instructed by those who have already experienced it, to be encouraged by those on your left and right who are experiencing it and recognize the moment of our rescuing and speak of God's salvation? How cool would that be? Y'all stand to your feet and we'll do it.